Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's guest uses practical examples and guides us through conceptual, transpersonal art experiments to demonstrate how we can use the power of art to access our inner child, express our buried emotions, and use any form of art as a catalyst to transform our lives. She shows us how we can use art to bring our subconscious to the surface, and then how to use it to create the life of our dreams. Pure creativity is an activity that has no predefined destination or purpose while applied creativity is an activity that always has a goal or application in mind. Pure creativity can be seen as a kind of play, while applied creativity is usually seen as work. We welcome creative consultant and coach with a stellar list of clients from IBM to American Express and the author of multiple titles, including the focus of today's show, Parallel Mind, The Art of Creativity, The Missing Manual for Your Right Brain. Aliyah Mar, welcome to the show. Hi, Aiden. How are you? It's fantastic to have you on the show. I'm very, very well. I love the quote you opened the book with. The Toltecs believe that every human is an artist and the art we create is our lives. It'd be great to get a little bit of context about that. Yeah, I think that in the end, what we're creating is something that we can't see. And what we're really doing is reconnecting with our purest self, the one that came in to this planet with so much enthusiasm and joy and this idea of playing in the material realm. That's what we're supposed to do here. We're supposed to play with what we have and to learn how to play with material objects and learn how to work within the parameters of this material realm. And that can be a lot of fun for essentially an unlimited being to play with limitation. And one of the things about being an artist is to learn how to play with limitation. We think of limitations as being as obstacles, and they're really not. They're points of departure. They are sources of inspiration. I currently have a coaching client who is dealing with a block in his life, He was criticized when he was just beginning to emerge as an artist. And so he goes back into his shell and he's in like suburbia, which to me is like one of the hardest places to create in because it's very bland. You know, everything seems to be the same, you know, sort of homogeneous. And I told him, I said, an artist can create from whatever he has. Learn to find the spark inside the limitation. There's a thing that artists do It's called creating with a limited palette. You have access to all these colors and paints and things like that, just enormous variety and shades and colors. And what we often do is we don't work with all of them. You'd be crazy to work with all of them. So we're always working with a limited palette. And the limited palette is what enables us to go forward. In my book, I talk about applied creativity versus pure creativity. One of the joys of implied creativity is working with a limited palette. You're doing designs for business, you know, like you're doing graphic, I'm a graphic designer, so this is often the case. And, and the client has a logo that's predefined. Someone else defined it. Someone else created it. 
So you have to work with that logo and it may be a horrible logo, something that you don't like, you know, something that doesn't really work well at different sizes, things like that, but you still have to work with it. And the client may have predetermined colors. You have to work with those colors. So within those limitations, this actually helps creativity blossom. You mentioned the client, your client and the criticism. You talk beautifully throughout the book about the childhood opportunity of non-judgment and playing without purpose and that it's that beauty that we need to tap into again. But in life, parents, religion, school, education, everything criticizes people as they grow up. Therefore, they become beings that expect to be criticized. There's a great guy, Tinker Hatfield, the creator of many Nike shoes, and he says, if people don't either love you or hate you, you're not doing very much. You're not creating very much. And it's something I tell my own kids. I say, when you do anything in life, people will criticize you because in a way you're exposing they're not doing something. So when you hit that point, expect it. And when you hit it, you're making progress. I love that response. To tell a child that, I don't know if you remember what your father told you or your mother told you, but I do. Those things can incubate in the mind of a child until they're ready to use it. It can stay there. And I think that criticism is something that shows that we're making progress. It helps us define ourselves. It helps us push against something. There's a complex concept called the petty tyrant, which is you know, also available in Castaneda's works. And the petty tyrant is someone who helps you define yourself, but actually helps you get rid of all of those little trigger points that keep you from going forward, keep you wasting your energy in things that uphold your own definition of who you are. And one of the things I think is very difficult for people to understand is that we're trying to not define ourselves. We're actually trying to undefine ourselves as artists. People think that artists are here to express themselves, but they're not. They're here to express who they're not. They're here to explore who they're not. Because exploring who you are only takes you to limited limitation, back to limited definitions, and only makes you more and more defined. So by defining who you are, by expressing who you are, that's a first stage of being an artist. But I think after a while, it's like, you become bigger and bigger. You want to become bigger and bigger. You want to explore. You want to expand. You want to have less and less self-definition and start to express yourself in ways that actually become more and more expansive. My art, for instance, I'm, a, I'm an artist. I'm a poet. I'm a designer. I'm an author. So I've learned all these different forms of creativity. And what I found is that it's the mood of being an artist that's the most important thing through all those different forms of creativity. I could go into a form I've never gone into before and get really, really good at it from the standpoint of being a creative person because I know what the mood is. The expansiveness is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for finding different ways to explore different concepts and things like that. So through my artwork, I explore concepts and I might use poetry to explore emotions. The seeds we plant in the mind of a child do incubate. And you mentioned your own mother. What did she say to you? Well, something my father said to me that blew me away. Um, my mother said a lot of things to me. And, um, but the thing that comes to my mind is what my father said. He said, it took me a long time to realize that not everyone thought the way I think. 
that sat with me for many, many years. And it's become one of the guiding posts of my life because to have him say that, you know, he's not socially inclined. He's kind of a nerd. So to have him say that made me realize that, yes, it's true. We all live in our own little bubble. We all live in our own little world. The world is a description. So we describe the world to ourselves and we uphold it with every thought. So when somebody introduces a new thought and it hits us and it injures us, you know, like a child, um, so a child is criticized um, first time, they're criticized, they sort of retreat into themselves. And that that creativity, which is trying to come forward and express itself in a pure way, gets stuffed and stuffed down. That criticism is something we all have to learn how to overcome. We all have to learn how to go forward and stay in our own path without accepting criticism that's coming from people that does not apply to us. Most people, when they're criticizing someone else, and I'm not talking about practical critiques or you know things you have to do at work or anything like that, it's coming from a standpoint of jealousy or uh, you know some kind of internal thing that's happening with the other person. So you can't allow your work to be seen too soon because if you allow the work to be seen too soon, it's like opening up the cocoon of a caterpillar before it's done. A saying I tell my own children is, wolves don't lose sleep over the opinion of sheep. I don't mean that in a combative way. It's more when you're going to forge a path in life, people are going to object because it exposes them. I loved what you said about it's almost like there's a decision tree of life. And I, I saw recently, I don't know if you saw it on Netflix, Bandersnatch, there's, it's one of the only things I, I've watched is Black Mirror in the last few years. And mm -hmm. because it's like this Black Mirror of society and Charlie Brooker, the writer, released this mm -hmm. movie Bandersnatch. And in it, you as the audience can select the fate of the character. Very few movies have been released like that. And certainly on a platform like Netflix. When I was watching, I was kind of going, isn't that really our role as mentors or as guides or parents in life to provide or usher our children into the best decision possible? So they'll always be faced with several decisions. And decisions are actually the hard thing. Which way to go? Do I go left or right or up or down? Whatever. Mm -hmm. And that all we can do is actually prepare the path the best we can. I love that. I love the fact that you're preparing the path for your children with your words of advice. You know, like I said, it's it's like a seed that you drop into the ground and you never know when that seed's going to plant. It's, you know, going to blossom. It's all on its own timing. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It tees up nicely this one because you mentioned about us creating our own reality and it's a, a theme that appears in lots of your books. And I loved what you said in this book, In Parallel Minds. You say, the eye cannot perceive without the partnership of the brain. The brain creates reality from the data that it receives, including those words from anybody in life. And people have said stuff to me that has absolutely massively helped me. But even when it thinks it is merely perceiving, so this is the brain, it is impossible to be truly objective with, about anything because of the way our brains are designed. It'd be great to share that a little bit with our audience. Well, yeah, it has to do with the, the fact that, you know, your your brain doesn't directly perceive. It has to, it has to go through what it knows already. So there's another great quote, the brain can only perceive what it's prepared to perceive. There's a great example about a man who had lost his sight 
earlier in life. And then his sight was restored. And when his sight was restored, he could not comprehend, even though he had sight, he could not comprehend what he was seeing. When he saw a car on the road, he didn't know if he thought he would see like a, a bunch of cars and some of them would be big and some of them would be little. And he knew that the big ones would be, were, he thought that the big ones were bigger than the little ones. Well, what he was seeing was distance, but he didn't know how to correlate that. He didn't, he didn't know how to interpret the data. And it got so confusing for him that when the cataracts that he'd had removed started to return, he didn't prevent it. He preferred to be blind than to be chaotically assaulted by data that he could not, his brain wasn't adapted to. You know, there's a, they've proven that birds learn to sing uh, at a certain time in their life. And if they are not exposed to the song of their parent during the time when their brain is adaptable and flexible enough to record the information, then they never get it. And I think that's true for us. I mean, we have certain times when our brains are plastic enough and are adapted for language. And, you know, there's there's actually, you know, defined times when most people learn how to speak. And it's just one of those fascinating subjects to me is consciousness, perception, and how we can change our lives consciously. But also this idea of we have to know, just like the artists working with limited palette, what those limitations are, because if we don't know what those limitations are, we accept our thoughts for reality. Don Juan said, the world is a mood. It's a feeling. That's all it is. Been on top of the world and you have this great feeling. Everything is flowing for you, blah, 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 blah. You get in a depressive mood and nothing flows for you. Everything looks dark and dank and unappealing. Those are definite, we could say chemical things but they form the world for you. If you can't conceive of something, you can't have it. It's hard to have it if you can't conceive of it. The shamans in ancient Mesoamerica were walkers on the other side. They were seers, so they were able to see things that other people could not. And they sort of walked to the edge of madness too, because you know there's a lot of stuff that's in the unseen world that they were capable of perceiving and would put themselves on these vision quests and dabble with stuff that most people would not want to go to. But they were capable of seeing the ships when they arrived from Europe. You know, these ships on the horizon, when they came into close to the land, were these huge battlements, you know, they, they were huge like wooden ships made for going across the ocean. And the Indians had no concept of anything like that. And so they couldn't see it. They could not actually see it. It was like there was nothing there. And the shamans could see it. They could see it because they had been prepared to see something that was not within their normal lexicon. The late, great Dr. Wayne Dyer has a great saying, which is, change what you see and what you see changes. And it very much tallies in with what you were saying about the Oliver Sacks and the, the blind man study. And what I found really interesting there is the science behind that. You talk about the reticular activating system, the RIS, which allows certain information into your brain to filter. So in a way, 
we can control what we see. What it is, is a filtration system for the brain. Like I said, the brain is receiving just as a man who, who could not process what he saw because he had been blind for so many years and had not prepared his brain to be able to process this. He didn't have any filter system. The reticular activating system lets in only data that meets at least one of the following criteria. Either the data is important to survival, or it has novelty value, or it has a high emotional content. Okay, so the reason why is that if it doesn't have any of this, your brain has to filter it out. It does a very sophisticated process called skimming. And skimming will only allow you to get certain amounts of information because there's way too much of it. So the RAS is sort of like a survival system. I think in the book I said something about you're walking down the road and maybe you're on the phone talking to somebody. And all of a sudden you see a child in the middle of the street, right? All of a sudden that becomes more important to you than whatever the person's saying on the phone. And then you hear like this big blast of a horn, right? Because the child's going to be run over by a car. All of a sudden, you have to be cognizant of your own survival, but you also have high emotional content. So that's when everything else fades to the background. And you've seen this happen. You've also seen things move in slow motion. You know, if something happens that's important to your survival, things start to go in slow motion and you actually know exactly what to do. One day when I was learning how to surf, I've got this big board and, you know, it's a big foam board, but it's basically has a lot of power behind it because it, you know, the wave can take it really fast and it's actually quite heavy, you know, even though it's made out of foam, right? And I'm surfing on the board and uh, you've got a leash attached to your leg that, um, so when I was taking the wave, I fell off and I'm under the water and the board's going forward. And I feel the leash wrap around my neck. And in that moment, things were really, really slow. And I just very, and I had to do it in the right direction. I basically swiveled my head so that I'd unwrap the leash. And I don't know how I knew which way to go. If I'd done it the wrong direction, I would have made it tighter. But I did it exactly right. And everything went really slowly. So this is the RAS, you know, it's, it kicks into play. And it's important due to my survival that it's important, but things actually slow. And when that part of you takes over, it's like that inner child, inner self that knows exactly what to do. And what we've got going on most of the time with our minds is we're in high beta wave. And when we're in a high beta wave, we're in sort of this low frequency anxiety. And our minds confuse us. We're, our thoughts are constantly into anxiety and survival and stuff like that. But it's not that pure survival thing where you know exactly what to do. It's a completely different kind of thinking. And there's no emotion with it. You'd say about that emotional charge is absolutely important. And I, I loved here because you talk about how you can certainly influence your reality some people might not agree with the law of attraction and manifestation etc etc but i loved the analogy i had never seen it before where you talk about frankenstein and that frankenstein <laughs> i love this i'd love it. you you share it with our audience i love this one <laughs> okay okay so 
when we talk now, this is different from the reticular activation system. So we'll talk about something else here. So the important thing is that, you know, I realized that we have sort of the way I saw it was we have, you know, those Russian dolls where you have the doll within the doll within the doll. So we have like, say, four bodies and we have our physical body, which is the inner doll. And then we have the emotional body, which is enclosing that doll. And then the mental body outside of that one. And then what people might call a spiritual or energetic body or creative body. In my book, I call it the creative body body just because, you know, it's a book about creativity. So all of that, they all kind of interact and inform each other. When we're going from pure creativity, we have to go through the mental body first and then through the emotional body. And then it becomes physical. So we're actually going, and I explain this in the tarot key, which is really interesting, this concept of going from energy to matter. Basically, it's an energy to matter process. And what we're doing is we're actually creating physical reality from pure energy. And I know that sounds unscientific and everything like that. And, you know, I'm not going to talk to the scientists in the group. <laughs> But what happens is that it, it, when you think about it, it's like, okay, so we're going from energy to matter, but then matter comes back out to energy, right? So what happens is when we are taking our thoughts and we, you know, so pure energy comes to us and that could be in the sort of ethers and stuff like that. So pure energy, we take it and transfer it into a thought. We make it and our thoughts can only be what we're prepared to have them be. So if our mind has been very rigid, um, we can only have rigid thoughts, you know, and thoughts cannot be outside of our own capability. So everybody could probably admit to that, right? But when you take an emotion and you charge it with a thought, then all of a sudden it becomes real to you. And the way I describe this is in the movie Frankenstein. Uh, Frankenstein, the doctor, grabbed all these body parts and he sewed them together. And it was just basically just a piece of meat on a slab. And he put these electrodes in the monster's um, neck. And then he pulls it up to the ceiling and it opens up the ceiling. And he allows the lightning to hit the electrodes in the monster. And what the lightning does is it makes the monster come alive. That's the emotional input that makes things real. My mother believed that she was going to die of cancer her whole life. She was terrified of cancer. So my father gets cancer and she was convinced she would catch it from him. She took care of him and he died of cancer. And 10 years later, with a lot of emotional input, she contracted the same kind of cancer and she died of it they're becoming aware of the fact that emotions cause disease in the body. That's still out there for some people, but I completely absorbed that information. No problem with that one. I do have a scientific, very big Doubting Thomas side to me, but when it comes to knowing what happened to my mother, I know exactly what happened to her. I know why she died of cancer. It took her 10 years to manifest that in her body. I'm the same as you. Like I was very skeptical of all this. And then, but latest scientific research, epigenetics, Bruce Lipton, 
Dr. Joe Dispenza. I mean, these guys have invested millions in research and are showing whatever you start thinking about manifests. And it's, you know, the telomere effect, etc. So you can create the longevity of your body. So if you think you've no reason to live, well, your body thinks you've no reason to live. So it starts starts rearranging and prioritizing based on your beliefs. Yes. The Toltecs call this a smoky mirror. What they mean by that is that reality reflects what's inside of us. But we're not aware of it because it's a mirror that's smoky, that we can't quite see. We have this sort of time-space delay, and that delay is what keeps us from being aware of the fact that our thoughts are manifesting themselves, that we almost have to have the illusion, because if we didn't have the illusion, we'd pop out of this experience and game over. <laughs> Bringing it back to many people in, in work, for example, so C-suite executives, workers, office workers, etc. Many people work in a purposeless environment or in a role that's not fulfilling them at all. And I thought this is one of the reasons I, I reached out to you is you talk about that constant state of beta wave or the stress state totally turns off the creativity tap. And by doing that, and I never thought about this, and it goes back to what your dad said to you, and this is the first time I heard that, is if you are thinking uniquely, oftentimes you think everybody thinks that way. So you're presuming, why don't you do that? But then when you learn more and more about it, you actually realize that for some people, they didn't have this creativity enabled or it wasn't allowed or it was it was frowned upon. And we do live in a very left-brain society, as you say, where left-brain linear structured thoughts are rewarded ahead mm -hmm. of more nonlinear creative. And, and thankfully, that seems to that tide seems to be changing a little bit. But for many people living in a stressed state doesn't allow them have a vision or doesn't allow them imagine or dream or think of an alternative reality that they could strive towards. I thought that was really, really fascinating. It's unfortunate. And it is part of what I call the matrix. The matrix has this effect on people that puts them to sleep in kind of a nightmare situation. I, I don't know that many people can be happy without the creative side of them empowered. I don't know for sure, because I, I tend to see everything from the standpoint of creativity. So, you know, maybe people that are very happy with their lives. But in general, I see a lot of people that if somebody is creative and they're frustrated creatively, they're very unhappy. I don't know how to be not creative. You know, I think everyone is creative. So whether how they express themselves creatively or what they tend to do with it is another thing entirely. But a lot of people feel limited in how they can express themselves. So that, that could be even worse is to say, well, I'm only allowed to be this amount of creativity. Or, and I think a lot of women had this problem until more recent years. This is where you say work with limitations. You say we can work with limitations like that. In your coaching work, you talk about the mnemonic COPE. So COPE uh, stands for connect, observe, play, and express. The main thing is to connect with yourself and actually not even connect with yourself. Let's say connect with everything around you. So you can only do that when you don't have survival situations. So if you're in, a, you're in high anxiety, you're not going to be able to do this. This is, this is one of the things that's kind of difficult to get yourself to a space where you don't have that high anxiety. 
or that feeling being judged. But if you can get into that space of not being judged or being in high anxiety, you can connect with what you see around you, observe it dispassionately, play with what you see, and then express yourself. Those four things can take you to a different level. Aliyah, last question for you is, with your work, you're having a coffee and somebody starts talking to you and you have that opportunity to drop a nugget of wisdom for them like your dad did and your mother did many, many times. They planted seeds for you. What's the seed you'd like to plant in the world? Wow, that's an interesting, deep question. I guess it's the idea that we're here to experience and play with what we are not. Explore what's around you without judgment. Don't judge yourself. You came here just to have this experience. And life's too short not to play with what you see, not to enjoy what life has to offer you. If you can release your creativity, if you can activate your creativity, or if you have a block, return to that inner child, return to the point where you can play again. Once you do, things will start to open up again. Beautiful. And if people want to reach out to you, Ali, and find you for your, as a creative consultant or a personal creative coach, where can they reach you? Well, they can find me on LinkedIn for the creative consultancy. Uh, you know, that's where my official brand is. And my name is spelled A-L-I-Y-A-H. And the last name is M-A-R-R. And you can also find me on ParallelMinds.com. That's P-A-R-A-L-L-E-L. M-I-N-D-Z, as in zebra, Z twice. Two zebras. Mm, two zebras at the end. Author of Parallel Mind, The Art of Creativity, The Missing Manual for Your Right Brain, Aliyah Mar. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aiden.